Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of The Cryptid Corporation, representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest this week is Lisa Fancher. Lisa founded Frontier Records in Los Angeles, California in 1980, and the label is currently celebrating its 43rd anniversary. Frontier was one of the first independent labels to document the nascent L.A. and Orange County hardcore punk rock scenes before branching into other scenes such as the so-called Paisley Underground, goth, alt-country, and even pop. But they always had the focus on guitar-based bands, and some of the bands releasing records on Frontier included Circle Jerks, Adolescence, The Weirdos, TSOL, China White, Christian Death, Red Cross, Thin White Rope, Heat Miser, Young Fresh Fellows, Dharma Bums, American Music Club, The Long Riders, The Three O'Clock, The Pontiac Brothers, Naked Prey Flop, and of course many more. And they're quickly closing in on their 100th release. It is my pleasure to welcome to Revolutions Per Movie, Lisa Fancher. Hello, Chris, my old friend. Are you ready to get in the pit with me? I am ready. I learned how to do the slam dance from a guy named Brian during this movie. So now I'm ready to do the pit. Oh, my God. What a movie. <laughs> We're going to talk about the punk rock hardcore documentary, Another State of Mind. But first, I wanted to ask you, you know, with Frontier coming up on its anniversary, what was your gateway into punk? Uh, my gateway was, gosh, it was so far back in the seventies, you know, geez, I'm a senior citizen, but um, my gateway was honestly like television, Patty Smith. And even before that, the doll, I think the dolls is a punk band, the Stooges are a punk band, but in terms of like hardcore, you started seeing hardcore, I would say 78, 79, you know, it was like, there was the, there was the art school wave of, you know, the weirdos and the screamers. And those guys were even a little older than us, but um but then hardcore was just its own thing. And I started writing about it. I wrote for the New York rocker and I loved to go to the cuckoo's nest to see shows. And I described it to Andy Schwartz and he was like, Oh, that's cool. You know, go write about it. So, you know, I met a lot of the people then and I didn't interview that many people, but you know, you'd stand around in the parking lot with kids. And I was always a stand in the back girl. Cause I did not, you know, those kids were wearing the steel toed boots, you know, it was not going like going to an X show where everybody had their vintage clothes on sipping a beer. This was like, you know, raucous and pretty dangerous, I would say. I had the same experience where I was always in the back. I tried the slam dance once. And, you know, films like this have, they, they have this mantra where you fall down, we'll pick you up, we're all there, it's a brotherhood. And then you just get demolished from some monsters. You just get stomped, you know. <laughs> and, like, and I really admire girls that got into it because they're not wearing all the steel-toed boots and all this you know, when somebody jumps off the stage on you, it's like, I'm not getting my neck broken to watch some stupid band. So I just went in the back. Fair enough. It's interesting because I feel like a lot more attention is given to kind of the art punk or, you know, more traditional L.A. punk scene than 
some of the hardcore stuff, I feel. It was like, maybe it wasn't as uh, developed, but you know, the adolescents were already banned. Middle class had already put out a 45. Um, you know, social distortion probably started in 79, 80. It was, they didn't have records out yet, but Posh Boy was already around. And uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to either have friends. We were just crazy about going to shows in Huntington Beach. So we'd get in the car, like after work, we would go to Huntington Beach, you know, get home like at dawn. This is when I was, you know, you know, I worked in a record store too. So nobody cared if you strolled in at noon, but um, we were just exhausted. And, and people played two sets then, which is unheard of now, but, you know, play two sets. So just absolutely wiped out the next day. I didn't know that. So TSOL or the adolescents would play two sets not necessarily maybe if you played the whiskey the whiskey or the starwood i believe would require it the whiskey certainly did because they would turn the house over cuckoo's nest i can't remember all i know is we just got home like you know daylight approach and by the time you eat and stuff you're just like uh, another magic day at work i had already <laughs> dropped out of high school and i mean i'm sorry height of pretending to go to college so right what was the the catalyst to start frontier then uh, I just wanted to put out a record. I really like this band called the Flyboys, and they weren't from OC. They were actually from the Pasadena area. And I just thought they were cool. They were very poppy. They weren't, you know, super hardcore or didn't have a big message. Or I had missed the boat completely on the, you know, the first wave. I, I, there was no financial way I could do the Screamers or anything. So the Danger House bands had pretty much come and gone. And so anyway, I just thought I'd give it a try. I came up with the idea after I got back from trying to live in London and um anyway i saw the Flyboys a bunch i liked them a lot i just thought i'd put an ep out because i had already you know i'd done fanzines and it just seemed like a fun thing to do was it an easy thing to figure out how to self-release something probably easier for me than a lot of people because i worked for greg shaw and Susie shaw at bomb records right so i knew how you know you have the graphic artist make a record cover and this is where you get it mastered i pretty much you know, either glommed onto their credit or just used the people that they already used to, to do things. So, but it took me a solid, um, gosh, way over a year and a half to figure out how to, you know, get the record out. I had to save up my paychecks and it took a while to get the, so that came out in March, 1980, which is why I call that the anniversary year. But I started the label, I don't know, probably late 78, but right. no product till 1980. And then they broke up immediately. Like <laughs> they came in to pick up their records and tell me they were no longer a band, you know, as a band, which was cool. I mean, that was nice of them, but I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So, you know, we took out ads and flip side, whatever. And it was just like, well, there's one for the books. And then I put out the Circle Jerks record and everything fell together much more quickly. And I knew how to do the stuff and the record came out within a, you know, three or four months instead of a year and a half. It's amazing to think how, I mean, bands were not made to last either. In general, no. Yeah, beautiful implosion. They all hated each other. They didn't know each other. And then yeah. they move on. So like the germs is a perfect trajectory, you know, and you know, they can't really come back. Even if you're singing with the guy that was on ER, it was like live fast, die young kind of thing. And and some of the bands are still around, you know. The band you know, um, Youth Brigade and Social Distortion still still with us. Yeah, does that surprise you? I mean, did you ever imagine that, you know, 2023 we'd be there'd be a punk rock museum and all these legacy bands and a new adolescence yeah. record and things like that punk rock bowling and people come from all over the world to see vintage punk bands and like 2000 punk bands 
kind of amusing. Yeah, I, I didn't see that happening. I no. really, you know, I, I, I came into it a little, you know, later than you. And, you know, it felt like it was already the, the last wave of American hardcore, you know, was kind of shutting down already by yeah. the mid 80s. And bands like, you know, Youth Brigade, who are featured heavily in this film, had changed their name to The Brigade. And, you know, they, you know, they'd chorus guitar pedals and they were trying to be more melodic and more R.E.M.-ish. And right. um, it seemed like people were really kind of stepping away from loud, fast, you know, angry. Yeah. And then and then to me, anyway, it didn't seem to bother anybody else. It seemed like everybody was super derivative, like everybody picked their bands that they wanted to sound like. Right. I'm going to sound like the Misfits and you're going to sound like the Adolescents. And they just kind of hodgepodge it together and it was super derivative visually and musically so i just wasn't that fired up on it so i jumped off that bandwagon yeah it's a good bandwagon probably to jump off you you had a pretty amazing had a good run yeah and your <laughs> run with the label has continued you know amazing amazing uh bands that you've put out over the years like thin white rope and younger yeah. fellows and it just... yeah i got involved in the northwest for a long time and i'm very proud of those records just as much they didn't sell so good but you know they're musically just as good but absolutely yeah well let's let's get into this this document and i know we've connected on this film uh in the past just in pure amazement of a document um it's kind of a tragic comedy in a way, yeah. um, you know, just capturing the innocence of the hardcore movement and, you know, DIY and just the pitfalls um, that come from the reality of touring. The film was filmed in 1982, but Another State of Mind wasn't released uh, until 1984. It was directed by Adam Smith and produced by Peter Stewart. And... It's really weird. I was looking up some stuff about Adam Smith. He went on to direct and create a lot of Disney shows, and he co-created Mad TV. Whoa, one of my favorites. And, and he wrote the screenplay for Pauly Shore's son-in-law. Okay, well, maybe maybe you should stick with directing, but um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, wow. So they basically they 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 befriended um, Sean Stern. Uh, Sean Stern from right. the Youth Brigade, and. Um, convinced them to follow them around and they had their own rental truck and they followed the, the these two bands on tour which were social distortion and youth brigade and it was both their first major u.s tour and there are so many great quotes and moments in this film especially when they're starting out sean says uh punks are misunderstood most people think of uh, punks as violent freaks rolling around on glass, beating each other up. When I think about punk, I think about the pulse, the energy, the possibilities of change. That's what punks are all about. Change. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. It's just, it's just weird. Like what? No, not really that much, but. Well, I came into it through when the straight edge movement was really at its height. So, right. you know, early 80s and i was really drawn to it by that kind of attitude but here in la you know i shouldn't say this because it's mean but i will we used to take bets on when mike ness was gonna die because he was such a bad junkie like he really that guy was a mess a lot of people were they were just you know terrible alcoholics keith morris had to quit drinking it was like that was kind of just part of the scene good or bad 
It was not the Discord house at all. I think it was, you know, it was obviously a more affluent thing. I mean, the I know that the youth brigade guys were certainly middle class. They were not squatters or anything. And that doesn't make you better or worse musically or anything. It was just just where they were at and social distortion. You know, they were Orange County kids and judging by all the complaining about money and stuff, I guess they were doing pretty okay or the parents probably come from nice homes. Did you have any association with BYO, their record label? Not really, no, I don't think so. You know, I was always friendly with those guys and they were good guys, but I didn't really have any, you know. I don't, it was almost like that was, even though LA's pretty contained, it was almost like they were a West Side type of a thing. And, you know, but they played on every bill, so I saw them many, many times. Yeah, one of the bills to raise money for this tour so they could buy a school bus and refurbish it was a show with TSOL, Adolescence, Wasted Youth, Youth Brigade, and I think there was like two other bands on the bill. Was that pretty typical, like a six-band bill? Yeah, I would say, yeah, they always, you know, because people played really short sets, so, you know, the adolescents didn't even play half an hour and stuff, so six bands didn't really even take that long to cycle through. If you could find everybody and they hadn't gone off on a beer run or what have you, or if they showed up from OC. My question is, I wonder why they wanted a school bus, but I guess that makes sense because you could fit 11 people in a school bus. I think it's a romantic notion too. You know, let's, we can't afford a tour bus, school bus. Right. Let's, let's just trick it out and build, build bunks in it. But from the get-go, half the people involved, the crew and half of the band, kind of knew that things were not going to go very peacefully. And I think a member of Youth Brigade is saying, oh, I can't wait to see us fall apart. You know, we're going to get on each other's nerves right away. Because at the time, it was difficult to tour at this time. Am I correct? It is correct because I was, I, I can tell you for a fact, like the Circle Jerks did not tour. I put out Group Sex and like November 1980, there was no mechanism to tour, you know, maybe you could go to San Francisco or San Diego, but there was no, you know, any infrastructure in the country to go play everywhere. So it had to be one of the first like hardcore tours, I would think, 82. Yeah, I think, you know, being on the West Coast, we got a lot of the SST bands yeah. would come through up and down. But anything, you know, outside of that label or that, that group, I, you know, Dead Kennedys, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, but it was pretty quiet for a lot of these bands did not make it out. There wasn't like college radio wasn't a thing. There was cool record stores in every town, but couldn't really put on a hardcore show in there without it getting annihilated. So good on them for booking a tour. I don't know if you found out this fun fact. But they start in San Francisco, and then the next show is Seattle. They must have played Portland, right? I I think they say we're gonna go, we're gonna play Portland and Seattle, but they don't show Portland. A lot of the shows are, um, you know, outside of California. They're really poorly attended, or they're getting pissed that they're getting paid in rolls of pennies. Yeah. And there's one guy who who goes off on a promoter named Steve Pritchard. Did you ever run into that? Do you know who they're talking about at all? No, I never heard of that guy, but I'm guessing he either A, stayed in the business and was very successful, or he was, you know, ridden out of town on a rail. But a lot of the crooks, you know, were putting on shows, year, you know, years later. Yeah, there's the um, pretty great Cuckoo's documentary about the Orange County scene, yeah. The Cuckoo's Nest. 
And people are really divided on the person. The Jerry who, Roach thing. I was like, yes. you got to be kidding me. Like, what a good guy he was. I'm like, I don't know. Right. Everybody, you know, had a bad story about Jerry Roach and not getting paid and all that. And then he opened another club and then they went and played there. Safari something. Safari, I don't know what it's called. Did you ever go on tour with any of your bands? Not more than a show or two shows. I did a a, a gang thing, uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly with Thin White Rope and Naked Prey and the Pontiac Brothers. So I just drove to Phoenix with them just to make sure that the van was working. You know, it was like two vans or whatever. And uh, I was like, I'm making it really clear. This is it. Just going to this one. And even that was just like, you know, a bunch of smelly boys, you know, in a van. I'm sure it's really great, but I was like, couldn't fly home fast enough. Wow. Yeah, but it was fun. You know, it was fun. Everybody's jovial, I would imagine, at the beginning. Oh, absolutely. And Always. And by the end, they're all bitter. Well, they start in August 82, and they're basically playing 31 cities, including six nights in Calgary, and they're going to do it in five weeks. And, you know, uh, there was a network of people's floors to sleep on and places to get food and get paid and places to play and opening bands to be on bills. But this this bus idea they get immediately is the first thing that goes sideways in the film. It's constantly breaking down, and they have this this I guess you would call him the the father figure, the tour manager, this guy Monk, who we've talked about in the past. How you know if things are going badly, we're like, oh, where's Monk to fix this? Let's get him on this. Yeah, and you know he does his best, but uh. They, they're having to throw all their money into this giant bus idea, and they're just starting to get hungry. There's the, the per diems are going down. And the film is really basically about the t- deterioration of social distortion, like imploding um, in, in this incarnation. And Youth Brigade trying to keep it together with a we're all in this together mentality. You know, even after that show where they got ripped off and they get paid with in rolls of pennies, Sean's just, he's his quote is, it was a very successful show except for the fact that we got ripped off. Right. It's just like such genuine optimism. And also those two bands seem very different from each other in terms yeah. of, of how they want to roll with the idea of this tour. Yeah, it's just a whole lot of it is attitude, obviously. Like, we're going to have fun no matter what. Or if somebody shows up, we make a new fan. Had they only been able to see into the future that you could, you know, sell T-shirts and bring records with you. nobody, Nothing like that had ever occurred to anyone that you could sell things at a show. Uh, I was talking to some people the other day, and we were trying to figure out when independent bands started bringing their own shirts to sell at venues because i remember like if i went and see the butthole surfers i would buy the shirts at a record store yeah or direct from the label it wasn't like i didn't feel like the bands were traveling around with a lot of merch there was no room you couldn't even bring giant boxes of anything you know i mean you couldn't there was no room like everybody you know like if one thin white rope but you know there was usually four people in the band or whatever and you couldn't bring boxes of stuff there's just no place to even put it yeah, I feel like it came in later. Kind I think of. it was more like the late 80s or yes. maybe, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know who would be first, but it wasn't then for sure. Yeah, I just I just remember not there not being merch tables. Right. 
and there was not people standing behind merch tables at Satyricon. Or... No, 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 no. And then you, and then like when they got the idea, you'd have to rent like a U-Haul to put all the crap in, you know. And then you'd be like, oh, we have some more room. We don't have to give up sleeping space or foot space for boxes of albums. Right. There's a scene in Montreal where they try to go get some food late at night from a taxi stand, and a, and a, the woman working there is totally freaked out by the punks and won't serve them, won't acknowledge them, calls the cops. They're all kicked out, which I remember that, too. I remember people being scared of these pretty... I mean, they're not that tough-looking, you know? They're just kids wanting some coffee. Did you run into that a lot in L.A. with, you know, like some prejudice against, you know, the scene or people in it? Not that I recall, but it was pretty insulated, you know, like the Hollywood scene. Like, I don't know how they would react to people, but people had seen punks before or seen them on TV. So I don't think that was a big issue. But, you know, I was thinking about that, too, in Montreal. I was like, you know, Mike Ness has eye makeup on and they have black nail polish on and uh Derek usually had like pink or blue hair. So they're probably like, oh my God, they're just total murderers. You know, they thought it was like, uh, you know, the Marlon Brando movie, you know, with the wild, wild ones, the wild ones, you know, and they're just like, they just wanted to get something to eat, but she would, I mean, she stood her ground. She wasn't, she was not serving those guys any coffee or anything and actually called the cops on them. So imagine if they had started breaking things. Well, what about, were you at the LA punk riot the black flag ramon show uh there i wasn't at that one but i was at the famous elks lodge riot and then another time i was there black flag and the adolescents played the santa monica civic where the kids from oc let's just face it they caused lots of problems and they broke like all the windows in the santa monica civic so the cops showed up i mean the bands did play but um the elks lodge riot nobody was doing anything this was old wave punks it was like the zeros go-go's you know, stuff like that. And uh, the cops just went completely berserk and nobody looked weird. Like this was pre-hardcore. Nobody even looked weird. And they all, the cops tried to break up every single show and would show up with the SWAT teams and stuff. And we'd just be like, what is your problem? Yeah, we had that in Portland too. I remember uh, unloading from a club in 85 and there being, it was with a poison idea and mm-hmm. DRI. And there were police on horses you know, standing by, you know, ready to go if anyone did anything wrong. And uh, this was like 85. Oh, is that crazy? Also, we had in the 80s, uh, you had your Wally George. Yes. You your Donahue. You had all these TV shows that were basically trying to understand punk. Like, you know, they'd have a panel with like, couple punk rockers and then somebody who was deprogramming punk rockers right. and then they'd have a mother who was supportive and then they'd talk to the audience and re-watching those recently it's kind of amazing how much hatred and misunderstanding there was directed to these kids yeah where they'd kick them out of the house completely just throw them out of the house and you know there's a lot of there was a is and was a lot of homeless punks punk rockers because their parents just get what they were doing and you know expected them to be get a job and be normal and everything. So still a non, still a problem. Yeah. This film originally, uh, before it came out, there was a, a segment on it on IRS is the cutting edge. Oh, I never saw that. I didn't know that. Yeah. They interviewed the directors and they showed certain interviews and they showed the, um, 
how to pogo segment. But they cut it, they intercut it with the Wally George uh, interview. Uh, I mean, he did many, many uh, shows about the the dangers of punk rock. And I think like El Duce from The Mentors was on one of them. And yeah, of course. That one of the kids in the movie was also on the Wally George thing. And he's the kid who's like, they want us to have, you know, 2.2 kids, a house, a job. Oh, that guy. Um, the all American dream is just not viable. And, you know, he's just a kid. But then you have Keith Morris, who's kind of like, the elder statesman in this film. And he's saying the same thing. He's like, there's no family system. You know, it's been falling down for about 20 years, you know, like sitting down to dinner, going to church. He's like, it's too fast a society now. That's done. Right. But I didn't, I don't know about you, but I didn't feel like those interviews with kids really added anything. It felt very um, decline in Western civilization. I was like, I know. (laughs) <laughs> but then I read when I was looking for like fun facts that the movie was too short. So they had to pad it. They had to add that stuff in later. So then I was like, Oh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. They did a lot of interviews later. This, a, a lot of the footage was later. Anything that was a big show where they're showing yeah. a massive pit. Um, that was all shot in LA later. Yeah. It had to be. Yeah. Clearly it was not on the road. So one of the most amazing scenes in it is the guy just showing you how to dance at a punk rock show. I love that. That was fantastic. What's his name? You said Brian. Brian. I don't remember seeing him at shows, but I'm sure he. I'm sure he was there at everything at the Cuckoo's Nest because he he had your classic OC look. Every everything about him was screamed OC punk. Which would what would be the OC look? Um, they didn't really wear. It wasn't anything artsy. They would just be wearing like a T-shirt, not even with a logo necessarily. Sort of like. Uh, I don't even know what they're called, like slacks, like golf pants kind of things, more than jeans. Maybe they wear jeans, but it was just some ironic look. And then they were, you know, they wore cardigans back in the day, but they didn't necessarily all have, you know, like the studs and the black leather jackets with studs. Some kids did, but they just kind of look like kids. And then, you know, of course, no long hair. That was like, that would get you killed. Even shoulder length hair was not, oh, there was so many shows where I would see one guy with long hair running for the exit because the entire audience was trying to murder the guy. And it's like, he's at the show where he likes music like you do, but somebody just got to look at you. And uh, I saw that a lot. Well, and then how many years later is everyone just like wanting to look like Manson? I know. Then they're all like, yeah, totally. Then, then they, cause the SST guys, you know, it wasn't that long where they were growing their hair out and looked like Manson and stuff. Well, this guy, Brian, does a pretty good job of getting you excited to go in the pit and get hurt. <laughs> Absolutely. Cause he's like a big, you know, he's like a six foot strapping lad and you know, he's not going to get hit. And, he, and he's like, don't worry, your friends will pick you up. And like, Oh yeah, no. Yeah. And he shows you the pogo, the skank and the slam dance. And he's talking about, you just got to stay in the energy. The energy is in the beat. You got to stay as long as you're moving. It's in the beat. It's in the beat. And there's a pretty great montage of people, uh, stage diving to a, uh, uh, youth brigade song that's pretty awesome but it's also fun to see how many boots actually connect with people's heads in the audience too yeah it went straight from like vans to you know steel-toed boots and the the rags and the spikes and all that kind of stuff but i want to say me and the circle jerks need to take credit for i always love those 60s magazines where they would teach you know like the time warp they would teach you dance steps so we put that on the circle jerks inner sleeve, you know, like how did, oh, right. you know, where you drink beer, you like do this, do this, drink beer. 
And uh, so yeah, that was already the Circle Jerks. The Skankin guy was already the Circle Jerks logo, but we did a little primer on there for you to show how to do it properly. Did you see like numbers going up of people knowing how to do it when that record came out? Like people just kind of aping it and being like, oh. It took a while, but yeah, I would say, you know, the, you know, there was some amount of it going on, but uh, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you who was the first person who started doing that. I'm sure somebody knows who that is, but. Uh, Maybe it's Brian. Yeah, it could be Brian. Baby Brian. It had to be an OC person, I'm yeah. sure. And there's even a, a really weird montage of these three kids practicing their stage dives in a pretty fancy looking uh swimming pool yes those kids in lc i was like i don't know if that's making a case for how down with the streets you are because they were like cushy house laying out by the pool chatting and everything yeah they looked pretty well taken care of you know yes meanwhile these this band's on tour and they're just like if you're hungry nobody's unified you can't be fed on unity you know, I remember like, Dennis Donnell's like, I lost six pounds. And I'd be like, I'd pay money to go on tour and lose six or more pounds. But anyway. Yeah. He was a little dude. I used to, uh, I saw those guys when they were little, little kids shopping at the Capitol Meet, the famous Capitol Meet where people would go after shows. And he had to have been uh, 14 or 15 buying punk records and stuff. So. Yeah. These bands, they were, they were teenagers, right? You know? Yeah. So kids out on tour. Barely 20, if, if that, like, you know, maybe Mike, I don't know. I don't know how old he is, but barely 20 years old. So what a fun thing to do, even if you run out of money and gas, I guess, not having done it. Seems like fun. It's, there's an energy in the film that is kind of lovely. It does make you want to go out and do it. Um, but, you know, I think the filmmakers also had to show the shit too, you know, cause it's a documentary, you need some tragedy. Yeah. And, you know, as the tour keeps going on, it just gets worse and worse for them. You just turn on each other, like big brother, you know, you just like, oh, they drive me crazy. They're always complaining. And the one guy would get his, uh, Derek again, would get his hair dyed. I need it black because things are going so bad. I'm going to dye my hair black. I was, I mean, unintentional laughter is like, really, that's the worst thing you can think of to do is dye your hair black. And you always get somebody else to do it, too. Yeah, totally. Some girl in a bathtub or some guy with his rubber gloves tying the guy's hair. I was like, come on. Yeah, he says at one point, she was no Mohawk mania chick. And I was like, <laughs> what? Are you? What? I, I, I know that's some sort of code with the crew about something, but like a mohawk mania chick i was like wow yeah that wasn't that wasn't in there was some super un pc stuff but there was some yeah un pc girl talk in the in the bus that was yeah you know, i'm sure it happens in every touring bus with 11 guys with nothing to do even if your uh band is you know all about unity it doesn't mean everybody in the audience is yeah so what what other things uh resonate in the movie from you do you have favorite scenes or um I liked I liked the kids that they talked to actually on the street at the shows. I let you know again the Calgary thing where, you know, they served them homemade chili and that was sort of like a minor Discord house or maybe not so minor, but took in the people and fed them. Um, Detroit was kind of when things were really going south. But I was going to say if I was making a movie about my own band, just because it's mostly 
it's it's mostly a BYO youth brigade thing, social distortion. We're along for the ride. But when you put Minor Threat in your movie, wow, they just blew both bands away. They're so good. And that Baltimore show, uh, Ian's mic isn't working, so like the crowd singing. So they already had their whole thing solidified, had it going on, and uh, it kind of makes them look like a bunch of little crybaby. And then and then they put up both bands. What's left of both bands anyway? Right. They let him stay at the Discord house. But I love the sign, No Girls Allowed, like it was the Little Rascals. <laughs> but because um, I don't know, I'm sure you're not allowed to do anything Discord, you know, that the Discord guys didn't do. So where did they do with the cigarettes? They have to go walk, you know, 10 yards away from the house to smoke and drink beers. And Yeah, they stayed with them for quite a while. Quite a while, because that bus was a mess by then. That thing did not work at all. No, and that that's basically where everything falls apart. Um, you know, the, the band splinters throughout the tour. Some people are flying home that are like, you know, tour management or helping, you know, roading. Yeah. But by this point, people are like, what's the point? There's nothing, nothing we can do. You know, you were talking about the Calgary thing where they brought people in. I found one of the interesting things and I, I wanted to ask you if, if there was something like this in LA where there was this, P-U-N-X house, Patriots of Jesus Christ in New York City. Oh, I saw that. Where they're they're like, hey, stay here. You're punk. You could stay with a bunch of punks, but we're going to bring you the power of Christ. But here, you eat your food and have a place to sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they cut to these kids singing these hymns, and uh, they look pretty miserable. They look like they're just being held hostage by a cult. I was going to say, I would have to be there. I never heard of anything like that in LA or OC, but you'd have to be pretty hungry for me anyway, to listen to somebody read the Bible at me. Yeah. I'd, I'd just go panhandle with a cardboard sign or something. Cause I'll be like, it's not worth it. Yeah. The, even the guy who's uh, preaching says, um, punk rock music does not bring God much glory. And it's like, I know they're doing it anyway. They're like, what? You know, did you listen to the lyrics or whatever? They weren't terribly judgy. I mean, it was nice, but so that was, that was a really interesting scene because, uh, I mean, you have to include it in the movie, but wow. Yeah, agreed. I I think, you know, all, again, all this stuff was kind of shot later um, because they just didn't have enough footage or enough of a tour to, right. to document. Um, and it was crazy how much gear they had because as people are leaving and, you know, ha- most of social distortion is gone. It is. I thought it was a really cool scene. Mike Ness writing another state of mind. The song. That's incredible. Because whenever you see a movie, like the song's already written, every plays in the studio at the same time. Like it's just fully written lyrics and everything. And he's actually working on it. You know, like gradually coming up with stuff. And it gave the movie a title that it probably didn't have. It's a great song too, uh, yeah. and it sounds really kind of lovely on acoustic guitar. Yeah, it worked. It's really melodic and melancholy and. It's a it, that, that's a great scene because earlier he's just kind of talking about what a doofus he is. Right. He's like, ah, I wrote down all the TV shows he watches. So he he he's he's like, ah, I get up, I wake up, watch Twilight Zone, <laughs> eat, General Hospital, then Rockford, and he's just laughing the whole time at how absurd it is. He just goes like, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, SWAT. Kung Fu, then I go out, drink with my friends, go out with my friends, you know, nightlife. Right. But 
it's just like it, it reminded me of faking sick, you know, on a school day and just like being in front of the television and watching all this stuff yep. just go by. And when you're Mike Ness, you're not really like day job material. So good on them if you got something out of Rockford Files that you can use or whatever. And it might be the Red Cross guys too. They just watch TV like every like they're like a sponge of, you know, TV stuff. I never expected social distortion to be a gold record absolutely band that just would be for the masses didn't see that coming at all did not wouldn't have expected mike to live this long he's extreme i'm mean, good on him i mean he's extremely wealthy as you know tons of houses and oc and uh they can make like a year's salary playing house of blues for they play like at christmas i don't know if they still do that but they did Right. Tickets were crazy priced and they play like a week and make, you know, ungodly tons of money. So good for Mike. He pulled it off after all this. And he seemed like he had the best attitude. He wasn't going home. He was in it to win it. That's good. It's good to hear. I feel like with punk, there's kind of a stigma that you can't succeed or make money off something mm -hmm. or you're a sellout. You know, um, there's been a lot of, you know, complaints about this punk rock museum that opened in Vegas, right? And the and these tours that are happening. I mean, I'm trying. Devo tickets are ninety dollars right I now. I know, isn't that crazy? I don't know. <laughs> they probably could have played a month too, even at ninety dollars. Yeah, totally. And there's a part of me that's like, they deserve it. They're yeah. here. They laid the groundwork, and it's a band. You know, it's just whatever. They're still um, kicking around and everything. Like, I don't know why the tickets are that much, but everything, you know, all shows are, are ridiculously expensive. So when I was younger, bands could be accused of selling out. Right. And punk bands did get accused of that. You know, I remember even certain Circle Jerk records, people are like, ah, you know, not as intense or. Yeah, I know. This one's metal. They sold out, but. You know, you look at Green Day and, you know, Jawbreaker are very popular, but they never, you know, had giant hits. But, um, you know, relatively did them on their own terms and everything like that. But after you've slept on a million floors and made no money for 10 years and you signed to a major, can't really fault people for that. You know, don't buy the record. Yeah, exactly. If they're too big for you and everything and they're too sellouty for you. Well, there's footage of Ian working at a Hagen dazs scooping ice cream in this film. Yeah, him and Hank used to work at the at the Hagen dazs in D.C. It was amazing to see it. I'd forgotten it was in it. You know, I you know reading about it in books and everything just to see right. Ian with an apron on, um, scooping up stuff. Just as long as it's not beer, you can have it. Oh my gosh! So as the as the film you know comes to a conclusion, Monk and Brett and Sean Stern, they spend over thirty hours coming back in a windowless U-Haul truck. Yep. Packed in the back. They could have been dead and nobody would have even known. I know. I think about that. Like air and darkness, the heat. Oh, youth is awesome. They must have just hammered on the sides of the van. We're like, let me breathe for a minute. I know. I know. And they get out. So, you know, when that guy Derek's complaining about the six pounds, I'm like, hey, Come on. you had no sensory deprivation like right. this, these poor guys. But, you know, I think, again, at the end, Sean is like, he's asked, how do you think it went? And he's like, was it a dismal failure? Was it worth it? Yeah. You know, he seemed 
like we set out what we wanted to do. Yeah. We set out to do a tour. We made it ourselves, you know, mostly playing all edges places, meeting the kids, meeting other bands. And it, it was a success. You know? Yeah. And you see if they have what it makes, you know, what it takes to make it. And honestly, if you weed out the people that are going to whine about everything the whole way. There's a lot of whining. There's so much complaining. God. <laughs> like, why are you in a band if you're just going to complain about everything? Sheesh. Well, until you're famous, you're going to eat a lot of, you know, PBJs or cheese pizza, if they even give you anything at a club. No, I mean, one of the shows, they didn't even open the door to them. They're like, we're not having this show. Yeah, it's, I know. It's not happening. Can you imagine? Which I remember happening quite a bit. Pre self. Remember when, you know, then people learned to check in first, like, we didn't even know your tour agent said you were playing there. You know, we're closed, you know, whatever it is. That even happened with every band I had. They would be like, we didn't know you were coming here. And a lot of people would just put on shows themselves. They'd rent out a hall, <laughs> Yep. you know, and they'd rent out a PA. And there'd be like two local punk rock kids who were really excited to put it on. And then the venue would look at it and be like, no, no way. <laughs> we're not letting you play here. Yeah. And uh, I just remember so many shows just getting to the door of something and be like, what? It's like at some music union hall. Right. Or finding out you're playing with a cover, you know, Leonard Skinner cover, you know, every gamut of stupidity that can happen to people. But you don't all get that on a documentary crew, all the ridiculous things. No, I mean, he had to save his energy for writing Son-in-Law with Polly Shore. That's right. So I heard that the guy that made the poster went on to be a fancy art design, like at an ad agency, I was reading about it, doing a little reading about everybody. And I always thought the poster was really cool. I have two very sad nuggets, which is that Dennis and Derek are both dead of from social distortion. Okay. And uh, uh, Dennis was pretty young. That was right around 2000. But um, Derek says something about I'm old, I'm 38. Obviously, it was a joke, but he died when he was 38 weird yeah i was watching some of the commentary with mike ness and that was one of the first things yeah. i brought up he was watching he's like it's weird he keeps lying about his age three different times and then he says i'm 38 right that's when he died that's when he died so. i think it was it wasn't that long ago really because the adolescence i think he had a little studio and the adolescents had recorded demos or something with him so it wasn't a super long time ago that he died so when i originally saw another state of mind uh, your brother and I would always, we had all these lines from the movie that we love and we'd scream, where's Monk and things like that. But it was actually kind of sad. Like when I saw it this time, I was expecting it to be super funny like it was to me. And it was, uh, it was much more, it was like a more somber experience. I can't explain why, but. Yeah, I agree. Um, just, yeah, just watching that wheels fall right off that bus. And nobody got hurt or anything, but um, learning who your band members are and all that, it was just it was a little more, more grown up to watch it and it wasn't just ridiculous. I agree. I feel like it it's just more real, you know, than when you're younger and you haven't done it yet. <laughs> right. Our band with my brother and, and Jim, who was in the Dharma Bums, mm -hmm. watched that film to just watch kind of the absurdity of how to do it wrong. And our tour was way worse than their <laughs> tour because we borrowed... Elliot Smith lent us the heat miser van. We rented it which, from them. Which I bought for them and it was a giant piece of shit, but I had nothing to do with picking the van out. Yeah, the horn got stuck. Three tires went out. 
We broke an axle driving into Austin, snapped off. Um, and then in Salt Lake City, the lights went out. And that's when Jim started kicking the side of the van apart. And I really thought maybe I'll never see Jim again after this tour. He may never talk to me. But we watched this film as kind of a like, ha yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, like, look at these punk rockers doing it wrong. And then it was just like, oh yeah. We played Corpus Christi. Oh no. They didn't they didn't know we were on the bill. We showed up there like, oh, we didn't know we had music tonight. We set up. We played to no one, and we just put it down, and then we left. It was like, I don't know what we were thinking. I don't know why we thought we still had to play, but that's youth. It should have been like, we get a night off. But yeah, when you go all that way, you just want to play. But it's also that thing we were kind of doing like then. We were like, we're in a band. That's what you do. You play, and you tough it out. I think we were just embarrassed that this is probably a much more universal situation than we thought. Absolutely. and we were just being naive, not really having done it like that. So you really want a tour manager so that he'll be the fall, he or she will be the fall yeah. guy. And that happens. Or what do you mean? They didn't know we were coming. Then it'll be someone's fault. Yeah. I can't even believe people want to do that job still. <laughs> it seems so thankless. Thankless. Absolutely thankless task completely. Oh my gosh. Was there anything that you would have liked to have seen the film address or done differently? I don't know. I mean, you just have what you have to work with. You know, it's like sometimes you get gold like dig and, you know, there's just crazy shit happening all the time. And other times it's not that interesting. Probably can't always film the guys. I don't know if they got in crazy slapping fights or they didn't seem like they're having a lot of fun. Even from the beginning, they seem kind of serious, but I got to think that there was foolishness happening or some laughs. But Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, I think early on, there's a lot more mugging and goofing around. Right. Um, but they do seem pretty wiped and they do seem pretty beaten yeah. down. Yeah. When the shows don't go, you know, they don't validate that you're doing this. It's got to be rough. But nevertheless, you're breaking ground there if you're touring in 82. Isn't it easier for other people to tour? Yeah. And probably that was not apparent at all. I mean, there was no way to know that that was the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, it was probably like, why are we doing this? Maybe it's time for a director's cut with all the footage. Isn't BYO still around as an organization? I'm not sure. I'm, I know that um, a little insider baseball, Sean is completely in charge of punk rock bowling at this time, and he's not doing business with his brothers. They all, I don't know if he got paid off or bought out or get it. But anyway, he's running punk rock bowling on his own. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Well, I don't know if BYO exists. I'm honestly okay. not sure. Well, what two bands touring in a school bus would you pick to have a documentary be made about? Wow. That I would have wanted to see. Probably, I'd always want to see Red Cross because they're ridiculous. And then, um, I don't know, like Vicious Circle because they were just the most violent, dangerous people in the world. And then see what happens. What, who were Vicious Circle? They were no C. It was sort of it was more of a gang than a than music. I don't even know if they recorded or if they have one track on something. It was like Jack from TSOL and they basically existed just to fight. That would be a cool tour bus thing. But like actual music from that era, like early eighties stuff. I mean, I would always say the Minutemen should be should have had their own documentary, other than stuff, you know, after the fact, but 
Right. Then we're going to get sad if we start talking about the Minutemen. Well, how did Red Cross get a pass with, you know, being early adopters of like long hair and glam in that scene? Nobody seemed to mind because they had started so early. They were one of the very first punk bands I ever saw. You know, Steve right. was 12 or something. So at that, I wouldn't say they had like buzz cuts, but they had shortish hair. And then when they decided, you know, and Black Flag made it okay to have long hair. And then they all sort of had long hair. Nobody didn't bother anyone. Okay. I always wondered, and it's true. I guess everyone saw them grow up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they had, they might, you know, obviously their heroes had long hair. So then they're just like, why are we putting on this facade that we're part of that scene when they were just sort of their own island? Right. Actually, someone is making a, a Red Cross documentary because I was interviewed for it, and I'm not sure what the status of it is, but that should be amazing because there's lots of footage. Oh, that'd be incredible. Well, you've put out so many records that are just in my heart and skull, and I think a lot of people would say that. And, you know, just listing off the, the bands that you've worked with and the different styles of music and uh, you just have had uh, an amazing ear for unique, I don't know, they're not weirdo bands, but they're definitely different. And I think I think Frontier yeah. definitely has a, uh, a shape to it that a lot of labels uh, don't. We never had a hit record, so it's a blessing or a curse. Right. I mean, Institutionalized did okay, but I never had to worry about, I don't know, so, you know, like labels like TVT, they just exploded. They had like one hit record and got taken over right. and blah, blah, blah. Never had to worry about that. There's been so many of those TK and stuff, like never had the opportunity to sell in. So right. here we are. <laughs> well, at the end of every interview, I ask people on a scale from one to 10, what they thought of the movie. And I, I grade it differently every time. And this time I want to ask on a scale from one to 10 of one being the weakest and 10 being the most excellent. How many earnest songs about unity would you give it on a scale from one to 10? I'd give it a 7.5. I think that seems really fair. Yeah. And if we stick together and we pull our resources, <laughs> we can get a bus and we can tour on this movie. As long as you can locate Monk so you can fix the timing <laughs> gears. So uh... Monk and Brian. Can you imagine pushing a bus around in DC traffic now? They would just arrest you on the spot for even trying such a thing. Yeah. And I'm surprised they just didn't yell at the camera people to be like, put down the camera. Yeah. Help us. Yeah, yeah, We're yeah. dying here. I know. Why are you filming this? <laughs> but everyone should see it because it'll it'll get your DI it'll make you want to form a band and go on tour. That's brilliant. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa. I'll see you around. Definitely. Thank you for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday, so be sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it as well. You can follow us on social media at Revolutions Per Movie and also find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye!